My name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Relationships, and the subtitle is How to Survive Them. <laughs> now, so the first thing that we have to look at is what is a relationship? And it is a joining of two or more. A unity. It can be a unity between man and his dog, or man and the all or the universe. Why do we seek relationships? To realize this fullness or unity which we imagine we lack. The individual feels restricted and separate or isolated. He enters relationships to enter a bigger, less limited world, to rid himself of the feeling of separation, to enjoy freedom from limits to be happy, to love, and to be loved. So the normal understanding of relationships is a linking of two or more objects or entities, like man and woman, or river and ocean. And this presupposes separateness or limitations. So relationship joins together that which is partial or incomplete in itself but which loses some of its incompleteness and separateness in the relationship. And for there to be relationship, there must be some commonality between the parties, i.e. there must be that which is the same in both. So all things being equal, the French, if they can only speak French, would be better able to relate to fellow French people rather than to Italians who only speak Italian because they have no common ground. Now, we claim to have no relationship when there is nothing in common. So we say things, I just can't relate to him or her. And very many years ago, I was a newly qualified chartered accountant, and there was a very strong identity of being an accountant, which is something to be very proud of if some of you aren't accountants. <laughs> anyway... I felt very strongly identified with being a chartered accountant. We were married and we bought this house and there was something wrong with the plumbing. Now, accountants are very good for very little and one thing they're no use at is plumbing, so I called in a plumber and he was due to arrive at 10 o'clock and at 9.30 the mind began to spin as to, you know, should I stay in the same room as him or should I go to another room? And if I went to another room, would he think I was being snobbish and wouldn't talk to a plumber? And if I did stay in the same room, what would I say to a plumber? Imagine having a conversation with a plumber. So this troubled me greatly for about 30 minutes, and eventually this plumber arrived. And we had a marvelous conversation. But it wasn't between an accountant and a plumber. It was between two human beings. If you insist on being an accountant, well, there's very few people who want to have a conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, having dropped the role, it was very easy to relate to this fellow human being. Now, however, to each one of us, there are many sides or facets. As we are unique, we only have certain aspects in common with each other person. And this has two outcomes. First of all, we have multiple relationships with the same person. 
So we may have a very good business relationship with a particular person and a very bad social relationship with them. And the second outcome is that because nobody is the same as us, and because we try to relate to people via their and our own facets or aspects, we never enjoy total union. All of the facets in us cannot relate to all of the facets in another, because at the level of individuality, we are all different. The result of these two outcomes is that individuals never fully relate, and thus our relationships never fully satisfy. At this level, where there is relationship, there is me, the ego, the individual, the person. And this person is simply an image, an image of who I am held in the mind. And the image is maintained by relationships. So when there is wife, my image of myself is of husband. When wife is dead, then the image of myself is of widower. And the image is increased or decreased or changed via the relationships which I have. The relationships that are enjoyed are between the person or image and some object or function. Everything and everybody is turned into an object or a function. So it's my home, my car, my wife. And sometimes when we are being introduced, it is as if we were an object. So this is my accountant, as if the person was pointing to a car. Now the word persona, from which we get person or personality, it's a Greek word and it means mask. And this is what we hide behind. This is what we show to the world, not as what is behind the mask. And mostly relationships between human beings are relationships between masks. And the question is, who is behind the mask? And what is the relationship there? Now, there are three possible bases for relationship. If the basis of the relationship is love, then we will seek unity with the other person, and our interest will be their happiness. If the basis of the relationship is attachment, then we will seek to share with the other person and our interest will be my happiness and their happiness. And if the basis of the relationship is possession, then we will seek ownership or control or domination or exploitation of the other person. And the interest will be my happiness only. Now the personality, this mask, only enjoys attachment or possession. When the personality dominates, love is not possible. When personality dominates, then the relationship is for our gain. And good questions to ask with regard to a relationship that you happen to be in is, am I in the marriage for my sake and for my gain? 
then it is a relationship based on personality. Or am I in the job for my sake and for my gain? The concept of gain in a relationship displaces love. The other personality or function is constantly being evaluated to see whether it is yielding me the required gain. And this results in statements like, I'm not getting satisfaction from my job, or you do not fulfill me. Now, personality operates nearly all the time. Thus, there is little true love in our lives, very little true relationship. Another way of looking at how the personality relates is what I am interested in, or what I like, and what I dislike. And thirdly, what I am indifferent to. And what I am indifferent to is the majority. Going back in time when Eamon Cochran was fourth in the 1500 meters in the Olympics, if you ask an Irish person to name who was first, second, and third, nobody knows because we were indifferent to every other runner except Eamon Cochran. If I ask you to name the Irish soccer team, well, you might do that. How about the Somalian soccer team? Do they even have a soccer team? who was first, second, or third in county cricket in England last year. The personality is indifferent to most of the world. With most of the world, it enjoys no relationship other than the relationship of indifference. Now, if we could remember that relationships are for unity, for love, for joy, and for fulfillment, so what goes wrong? Well, fundamentally, it is that we form a false image of ourselves, a golden idol that we worship. And this is based on impressions which live on as ideas in our minds, and these shape our lives. Some of them are clear, some of them imagined, some dreamt, some borrowed and some produced by disorder. And they build up slowly, so slowly but surely we develop our personality. And there's a quotation from the Dhammapada, and it says, Let no man think lightly of evil, saying in his heart, It will not come nigh unto me. Even by the falling of water drops, a water pot is filled. The fool becomes full of evil, even if he gather it little by little. And let no man think lightly of good, saying in his heart, it will not come nigh unto me. Even by the falling of water drops, a water pot is filled. The wise man becomes full of good, even if he gather it little by little. These ideas which are gathered about me create an image and this image then forms relationships with others based on this image. And because the image is nearly always present, therefore there is some relationship formed with everybody and everything.
So I'm taller than some, smaller than others, more intelligent than some, and more stupid than others. But I have a relationship with everybody. It's not possible to, to stop it. If you walk down the street, you form a relationship with everybody who passes you by. And we then experience life through the relationships. The husband knows only the wife. He doesn't know the woman. The child only knows the mother, but doesn't know the woman. The mother knows only the daughter, but not the woman. Everybody knows somebody different, a different part of the mask. Sometimes, when we only know people in relation to a particular aspect of their mask, we do not recognize a description of them. So if we have a boss and somebody tells you what they got up to at the rugby club one drunken Saturday night, you can't recognize it because you only know them in part. Or if you see them wheeling a pram, it just doesn't fit in with your image of them. Part meets part. And therefore we enjoy partial relationships. Therefore they never fully satisfy. When I was very young in the School of Philosophy, I had a particular tutor, and I had a very innocent image of this person. I thought they were the wisest person that I'd ever known, and that their life was absolutely perfect, and they never lost their temper, and all these wonderful things. And one day, I had this tutor for about a year or two years, the tutor came in and spoke about how he'd had a ferocious argument with his wife the previous week, and had been tempted to take an axe to her. And it shattered my image. I couldn't look this man in the eye for about a month because he'd let me down. My wife says, as regards people in the school, if they could only see you at home. <laughs> That's completely untrue, of course. The effect of identification with this image on relationships is as follows. The first thing is that it creates distortion. The value of everything is distorted. A scratch on somebody else's car is just a scratch. It's nothing to lose your head about. <laughs> a scratch on mine is a completely different matter. Something has to be done about the decline in society. <laughs> And I found, my, I found this happening to myself. A man rang me up, this was a couple of years ago, and his son was studying for the leaving certificate, and he said, I'm worried about my son, he's not really studying. And I heard myself saying, leave him alone. He's a fine young man. All that matters is that he is happy in life. And he's a good man, he will be happy. And then I looked at my own son, I thought, you better study. <laughs> what Confucius actually said about identification, he says, people usually lose the sense of judgment towards those whom they love, towards those whom they despise or dislike, towards those whom they fear, 
towards those whom they pity and towards those whom they pamper or are proud of. Therefore, there are few people in this world who can see the bad in those whom they love and see the good in those whom they dislike. The second effect of identification with image on relationships is loneliness. This personality of mine is so special, so unique, that it only really enjoys very few people's company. It is so hard to relate to what is different to me, which is virtually everybody. That is why I can be in a world full of people, a city full of people, and a room full of people, and yet feel there is nobody I can really relate to. And the third effect of identification with image on relationships is inconstancy. This image of mine changes from day to day, from hour to hour. Sometimes I enjoy a particular person's company. Sometimes they drive me insane. It depends which part of my mask is operating at that time. In fact, I am different things to different people. Perhaps a maniac inside the home and a saint outside of it. I was told this recently that when two people get married and are now just before the marriage at the top of the aisle, the bride has come down and she's standing there at the top and he's also there. And he looks down at her and he says, I hope she never changes. <laughs> and she looks up at him and she says, I hope he changes. <laughs> and both are disappointed. <laughs> if anything changes, then the tendency is for the relationship to change. So if two people are related and then one gets promoted or one comes into great wealth or even changes address. Even if we stay the same despite these changes, others will see us differently and thus relate to us differently. The fourth effect is repetition. There's a desire for constancy by the personality. And this results in repetition and a resistance to change. We repeat life, but life itself never repeats. We do not see things as they are. We merely react habitually, like, oh God, it's Monday. We have the same arguments, the same conversations about the same thing a frozen way of living, limited to a frozen view of myself. We become a type of person, so we are a strict father to a variety of children. And with this comes patterns of speech, so there's no real communication, no real meeting, just two patterns coming together reacting habitually. 
It sometimes happens when a person, you know, reaches their 20s that the desire for space and freedom is such that they find it very difficult to get on with their parents, that there's constant arguing. And they may leave home for a year or two and they relate intermittently to their parents by visiting or letters or telephone conversations and they think, we're getting on so much better now. And then you have to move back home again. And within a couple of hours, it's the same patterns operating again. And the only outcome of all this repetition is either conflict or boredom. And the fifth effect of identification with an image on relationship is insecurity. The belief is that my relationships are the source of my happiness. And therefore I need to control them. To have control over my happiness. And this makes me into a person who's asking, demanding, compelling, exploiting. We put requirements on others. And often home is like a web of conflicting requirements being imposed by others. And because of this insecurity, we seek exclusivity of relationship. We're afraid of competition from friends, from the school of philosophy, from golf. And we build walls around the relationship. And the result is only isolation and non-fulfillment. And life becomes purposeful, full of plans, fears, etc., all due to insecurity. Now, how may one enjoy true and fulfilling relationship? And the first thing is surrender. The Shankaracharya, who's the man that the school put all its questions to, he said, relationship is for unity, complete surrender. So the purpose is unity and the means is surrender. And further on he says, to be related is to surrender. If independence is retained, then relationship is not fully materialized. So what is surrendered? And what is surrendered are the limits on one's own individuality. So the example he uses, he says, turmeric is yellow and lime is white. And when you bring them together, they become orange. So both sacrifice either the yellow or the white, and both take up the orangeness. So something is lost in order for something to be gained. And what is lost or left behind are the limits or separateness. So if a man becomes a husband, well then the single adult life is left behind. In relationship, something new emerges, such as a husband or wife. Something is created, not a new restriction, but a new possibility of expression. The second aspect, in order to enjoy true and fulfilling relationship, is to give attention or value to the essence and not to the form. 
individuality is the difference between us. Commonality or essence is what is the same in us. What is individual keeps changing and what is essential remains ever the same. So to enjoy constant relationship is to enjoy essence. When individuality is most important, then one is simply attracted to or repulsed by the other, but never loves the other. Essence is only loved. Love is the natural in-between. Love removes the differences. It attains the unity. So relationship is not for gain, but an opportunity to express love. All true relationships are the expression of love in a particular form. So to fulfill the relationship, the emphasis is on the substance, not the form, the essence, not the individuality, the humanity, and not the personality. This is what is of value, and this is what does not change. So we can either have relationship of function, like husband to wife, employer to employee, and father to daughter, or we can have relationship of essence, i.e. from self to self. Desires, thoughts, and feelings belong to the function. So parents worry about their children, for example. But love belongs to the self in all. One is partial, limited, and does not yield satisfaction. And the other is complete, full, and satisfying. The third aspect of how to enjoy true and fulfilling relationships is to learn to play the game of life. The roles of life change from moment to moment, so the relationship required changes from moment to moment. At home, one might be husband or wife or child or whatever, but in the car, one is a driver or a passenger, and at a lecture, one is a speaker or a listener. And one needs to appreciate the role of the moment, so some passengers become backseat drivers. Now we remain true to ourselves, to our essence, yet express ourselves differently as the role requires it. We do not become the role, but play it. We do not become an accountant, but play accountant. We remain as ourselves, and do not become something other than what we are in truth. So there is ourselves and driving, but no driver. There is ourselves and mothering, but no mother. There is ourselves and engineering, but no engineer. To become a mother or an engineer, we have to become untrue to ourselves. We have to restrict ourselves. We have to reduce our humanity. But to play mother 
or engineer. We do not forego anything or restrict anything. Role-playing is an opportunity to express ourselves, not to draw boundaries and limit ourselves. So like an actor on the stage, we get the appearance or actions of a butler without becoming a butler. Now this role-playing results in non-identification and non-attachment. It does not relieve us of our duty, so it's not frivolous, but it does relieve us of the burden of our duties. So we would get mothering, but not a burdened mother. And how are we to know how to play the particular roles that befall us? Well, everything, every role has a unique quality which differentiates it from every other role. So fruits are different from vegetables and an orange is different from all other fruits. The unique quality gives it its own name. And it is its nature, and nothing else has the same precise nature. And this is to be expressed for it to fulfill itself. So the orangeness has to express itself for the orange to be fulfilled. And all roles and all relationships are just unique expressions of the one love that pervades the entire universe. Mother is not the same as child-minder. It is unique, as is child-minder. So what is it to be mother or to be son? Find the real name, the unique quality, understand it and play it to fulfillment. Now, what practical steps are there which might help relationships? The first thing is to understand the concept of complement. So man complements the woman, and woman complements the man. Mother complements the child, and also vice versa. Each part is partial but it exists by virtue of the complement. So if there is no child, there can be no mother. The complement fills out and makes complete. So the wife completes the husband. And one should look to the complement to see how to act, how to make the complement complete should be the constant quest. So how do I make my wife complete? Or how do I make my husband complete? Serve the complement, not what I want or what I wish to gain from the relationship. Meet the needs of the complement. Only then do we play our part. And only then are we satisfied?
We are not husbands when we are not caring for our wives. We are not doctor when we are not caring for patients. We are not employer when we are not caring for employees. So that's the first aspect, to understand the complement and to serve the complement. The second aspect, which is another way of looking at things, quite similar to the complement, is to find the third point. And this is particularly useful when there is disagreement or the so-called Mexican standoff. So, with husband and wife, what is the third point? The third point is the marriage. So the husband serves the marriage and the wife serves the marriage. Now the marriage creates the husband and wife so in a way you are then serving the creator, the creator of the roles. The, the roles are united in the third point. Man and woman are united in their humanity, husband and wife in marriage, employer and employee in the business. The left hand and the right hand, uh, the third point is the body. And you notice about them, they never argue and they never complain. The left hand does not say, I'm fed up holding the fork all the time. <laughs> I'd like to be a knife person once in a while. Why? Because there is an, a natural instinct for each part of the body to serve the entire. This is what is so nasty about the disease cancer. It is the unwillingness of the individual cell to serve the whole anymore, but to seek its own fulfillment. The third aspect, as regards practical steps, which would help relationships, is the emotional ground. Now, we all have an emotional ground which we habitually stand on. Some of us are habitually cold. Some are habitually suspicious. Some habitually aggressive, maybe angry or fearful. Some habitually loving, some habitually compassionate, some habitually warm, some habitually forgiving. But all these various emotional grounds can be summarized into two categories. They either are defensive or they're welcoming. So one should adopt the emotional ground of the welcoming type. One should welcome the visitors to our life. And the visitors to our life are all the events and people that come our way. Reject nothing. Let there be waiting, not planning. Be open and not protective of our image or stance. This openness is not fatalistic. It simply means not interfering or distorting what is perceived. 
And to do this, one must get rid of what is already known. Be free of our own ideas about ourselves. Set people free of our ideas about them. Of how things and people should be. Do not imprison people in our memory, our collection of stored ideas. And let there be no repetition. Never face anything from the past, but from its potentiality or its totality. Never dominate or manipulate or control, but simply serve the one in front of you. And be spontaneous. Get back your innocence, your newness. To be welcoming is to be innocent. And with this innocence comes real observation, real connection. Otherwise, everything is seen through a set of ideas. And I've told this story before, when I was about 15 or 16, and I understand some young people go through this idea, I became embarrassed by my father. I worshipped him up to the age of 10, for about six years, increasingly lost faith in him, and arrived at the sorry point of embarrassment by his presence. So if I brought friends home, and he was in the sitting room, I would make sure we piled into the kitchen. If he was in the kitchen, we piled into the sitting room. If we were in the kitchen, and he was in the sitting room, and he came into the kitchen... I prayed that he would leave quickly. And he would always come in and tell a joke, and I would squirm. <laughs> squirm at this appalling joke. But the interesting thing is, all my friends thought I had a really nice father. And they were right. He was a really nice man. But I couldn't see him. So for a number of years, I could only see him through a set of ideas. The key is to meet people and events as if for the first time, no matter how long you know them, always meet them as if for the first time. In this innocence, real intelligence operates. Otherwise, it's just accumulated ignorance that's operating. Reactions based on the past. And with this innocence, we are not our personality. We use it, but are not it. It does not dominate, but is a tool for expression. It can become creative, original, and flexible again. It becomes a means of revealing ourselves, not something which we hide behind. And the fourth aspect, as regards the practical steps to help relationships, is to do with communication. So this ego closes down the means of communication. If the ego strongly believes itself to be an accountant, it won't be able to communicate with a plumber. Always maintain communication. Relate honestly and fully. Honestly, by speaking the truth, and fully by saying what is in our heart. Be aware of the sound of our voice when we speak. 
we ask others to listen to us when we speak, so it might make sense that we listen also. And when we listen, then we will drop the sound of accusation, the sound of criticism, the sound of demand, and the sound of defensiveness. And instead, the sound of our voice will be loving, welcoming, supportive, full of praise and full of gratitude. The fifth practical step with regard to helping relationships is self-observation. So, this is a question that each one of us can ask. Do we know what it is like to be related to us? Do you know what it's like to be married to you? If you were another, would you marry you? <laughs> would you work for you? Would you work with you? I met a man once and a number of his employees had left. He was concerned about this. And I asked him, do you know what it is like to work under you? And he hadn't a clue. And I said, well, you should find out. And then you'll find out whether it's attractive or not. So would you look forward to working under you? Would you like to have yourself as a boss? Well, what we would not wish for ourselves, we should not offer to others. Now, to bring this to an end, to finish with true relationship, what am I is the master question. And only when we know this answer do we know our true relationships. True relationship is not object to object. It is not function to function, such as accountant to plumber. But objects are to be related to the unity in which both appear. And this is the ultimate third point, the source of all. It is consciousness, our true self. Nobody says, I am not. All say, I am. And this is the final commonality, the ultimate essence, the real unity. I am the witnessing consciousness present here now. And all is an expression of this same consciousness. And here there is no lack. And there are no demands, only giving. No patterns, just openness and sensitivity. Here we do not live in personality and in separation, but the personality lives in us. From the point of view of consciousness, creative action flows. And then we are really related to the situation, to society, to the world. And then the life 
is a big life of limitless opportunity, of limitless expression, of no relationship, but beyond all relationships, of unity in ourself. That's the end of the talk. What would you like to ask? It's a sort of a technical question following your talk. You mentioned about working for 15 years frantically in the hope that there'll be rest afterwards. And I thought I heard you rightly when you said that there's no such thing as rest, which caught me completely by surprise. Surely there has to be a thing called rest. All right. But what was actually said was that there was no rest in the creation. Everything in the creation is eternally moving. It has to. It's either growing, maturing, or decaying. So there is no rest in the creation. There's only one thing still that doesn't move, and that's consciousness or spirit or self. So the only absolute rest is in consciousness. But consciousness is not in the creation. So there is rest oh, yes. in oh, the yes. moment. Oh, well, we'd slash our throats if there wasn't rest. But there's no rest in the creation. If you think that you can, as I said, you know, make money, accumulate it, and then sit back and rest for the rest of your life, it's not like that. The creation will keep you moving. It's like people often will say something like, I just like to rest in bed. And so they stay on for a prolonged period of time. But you start getting irritable after a while. The sheets are beginning to stick to you at this stage, and then you decide, I have to get out of this thing. Creation will make you move. But it is possible to work frantically for 15 years in the midst of rest. Well, the word frantic is unfortunate. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be frantic. It would always be with measure. That doesn't mean it wouldn't be at immense speed, but it would always be measured. So, well, hopefully, when Michael Schumacher, for example, is driving a car, He's driving it at immense speed, but it is a measured speed. While the car can do, let's say, 200 miles an hour in the straight, he doesn't do 200 miles when he's coming to the hairpin. It then requires to be taken at 40 or 60 or 80 or whatever. So it always needs to be measured. But the measured may be very, very fast. But it's never, frantic is an unfortunate word. There can be rest in that measure. Absolutely. But the rest is in yourself. The body will be moving, but you're at rest. Let's take it like this. Let's say ordinarily, when you're walking, not striding to somewhere or later in that, but you're walking, you're at rest in yourself and the body is in movement. But take another occasion when uh, I ask you to participate in a fashion show and I say to you, I'd like you to wear some clothes in this fashion show and I want you just to walk as you ordinarily do, but up and down this walkway. Well, there won't be rest in that walking because you'll be trying to create an image perhaps or look elegant, all these sort of impossible things. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Does that make sense? Very much so. so yeah. 
what happens is when this identification with myself falls away, there is rest. But when this ego is active and looking out through the eyes and saying, what does he or she think of me and am I impressive and I want to get there on time, then there's no rest. So rest is in the self, not in the creation. It is possible to rest even when you're busy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's the point. Yes, exactly. All right. I'd like to think, Shane, that I'm a, a man of reason and that I'm free from error. Very good. But my daughter this regards idea. herself as a person of reason and also free from error. So, therefore, we don't always agree. Now, leaving me and my daughter out of the story, I think this happens throughout the world, that two people consider themselves to be reasonable, to be seeking the truth, and still they are poles apart. So I suppose the question maybe is, what is truth? Yes. In the situation of naked father and daughter, there are perhaps four possibilities. Oh, no, three possibilities. You're both wrong, which is the most likely possibility. <laughs> uh, you're right and she's wrong, or she's right and you're wrong. Now, it's impossible to say what truth is because you would have to encompass it or limit it in words, but to give you a sense of it. Under the laws of mathematics, the true answer for two and two is four. That is the true answer. It's a universal answer. It's not a personal answer. There are no differences of opinion about it. It doesn't make any difference whether you agree with it or not. Two and two is four. It is independent of the being saved. Two plus two is three. doesn't have those qualities. The answer three originates in the person, the answer four doesn't. It originates in mathematics itself. And so that would give you a sense. The truth is independent of the person who's speaking it. A person speaking the truth is not the originator of truth, but is more a medium through which truth is spoken. Truth is unchanging. So it's not true on a Monday and not true on a Tuesday. It's unchanging. It doesn't mean that it will always be applied in the same way. So, for example, if you were to take the commandment to love thy neighbor as thyself, this doesn't always mean that you wrap your arms around the person and give them a kiss on both cheeks. When Germany went to war in the Second World War for the Allies to defend the innocent nations, that was love thy neighbor as thyself. They brought Germany to submission. Then they helped to rebuild Germany. That was also love thy neighbor as thyself. So love thy neighbor as thyself may necessitate attacking someone, and it may also necessitate rebuilding them. It's a constant, but its application is unique to the situation. And the truth is not a fixity, but a constant. But to try and define it more than that would be really to limit it. It can't really be expressed in words because it's beyond words. It's independent of words. Does that help in any way?
Yes, thank you. Except my daughter, we don't discuss mathematics in those uh, arguments. Yes. <laughs> but it, it is interesting that you mentioned the war, that both sides and people in both sides regard themselves as being reasonable and being truthful, and still they finish up in this horrific mess. And, but, I mean, it's happening at the moment as well. It's that, a question of, you know, what is truth? And I suppose... It is the question, really, that has to be tackled. Absolutely. Man has the capacity to lie to himself. He can do that, and he can convince himself by his lies. It's a remarkable achievement, but he can do it. And so a person can justify or lie to themselves so that the unreasonable appears reasonable to them take it at a very, well, not a mundane example, but a much lesser example than war, the anorexic will lie to themselves about their appearance. They can do that. They can say, this is attractive. A drunken man can think he's making absolute sense. I'm sure you're not drunk when you're talking to your daughter, but a drunken man can think he's making absolute sense, and a man in a rage and think he's making absolute sense and he's totally reasonable. You'll only know in stillness. I've told this story many times, but perhaps since you've asked the question, it might be useful. It's only in that stillness that reason will operate. And as I said, it gives you a complete picture. For the first 15 years or so of the marriage, every time there was a good-looking woman in my presence, I would stare at her. Not glance, but stare. And if my wife was also in my company, she would make the normal retorts that you would get from a wife, like, why are you doing this, and stop. There would be no stillness here at all. And what there would be would be mechanical responses or reactions, like, I'm a man, or, which is some pathetic entity, obviously, and uh, <laughs> I'm only looking, or it makes no difference. Now, they're utterly mechanical unreasonable statements. But one day, I was driving the car, and she was uh, in the passenger seat, and there was this delightful-looking lady walking down the road, and I looked at her. And my wife said to me, every time you look at a good-looking woman, it hurts me. Now, there must have been some stillness here, because it was hard. It was hard. I'm hurting my wife. And like, as was said in the talk, there was an immediate, complete picture. And the picture was, like, all at once now, even though I'll take a minute or so to say it. But what I saw, I saw myself walking down the street with my wife, holding her hand. And erroneously, I was holding it too tight so that I was hurting her. And she said to me, you're hurting my hand. And I asked myself in that moment that if she told me I was hurting her hand, could I continue to hurt her hand consciously? And the answer was no. Why would I do that to my wife? Why would I inflict pain on her knowing? And so I knew that I couldn't inflict pain on my wife knowingly. And she had just told me that every time I looked at a good look another good-looking woman, <laughs> I've also done a charm course, by the way, <laughs> that it hurt her. 
It was absolutely reasonable at that point of time that I should stop. But the interesting thing is this, is for 15 years of marriage, there's a habit which I absolutely believe I can't control. And in an instant, one knows. And that's what reason does. It gives you such authority over your being. You can overcome anything in an instant. You don't have to go through withdrawal symptoms. Right? <laughs> Once the mind surrenders to reason, you are rock-like. Thank you, Shane, and thanks also for an excellent lecture. Thank you. Yes. Thanks very much. You've raised loads of questions in my mind, and I'd like to throw some out to you. Very good. There's no onus on you to answer them. Is reason the same soul? And if not, does reason reside in the soul? And are the enemies of reason, which you were talking about, would they, if it is soul or connected with soul, are they sin? All right. Have you got two weeks? <laughs> Well, first of all, it depends what you mean by soul, rather than spend an hour trying to define it. If we assume that by soul you mean the essence, or the source, or the, the very center of humanity, and something which is divine in its origins and perfect originally, then reason is not the soul, but a facility of the soul, or spirit, or self. Now, let's just use the word soul since you've used the word soul. The soul has two great facilities. They come from God. One is to love, because God is love, and the other is to reason, because God is wisdom. So the human being has these two tremendous facilities. They're not the soul itself, but they are facilities of the soul. So that's the first thing. The enemy of the soul, if you want to put it like that, is the ego. It's a false image of yourself. It is thinking yourself to be your body. It's thinking yourself to be young or old or good-looking or ugly or fat or slim. These are qualities of the body. There's no such thing as a fat soul. Right? <laughs> the ego sometimes doesn't identify with the body. It identifies with the mind. It says, I'm intelligent, I'm stupid, I'm very clear about this, or I'm very confused. These are not qualities of the soul, they're qualities of the mind. Or maybe the heart, I am joyous, or I'm miserable, or I am broken-hearted, or open-hearted. These are not qualities of the soul, but qualities of the heart. So the ego identifies with the instrument. I bought what would be classified as a very big car, and I really enjoyed driving around in that very big car. As cars do, it had to go to the garage to be repaired. And they gave me a tiny little car to drive around in. And I was very uncomfortable in that. Because I'm a big car guy. <laughs> <laughs> and if people see me in this little car, they might think I'm a little car guy. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> so, so for a couple of days, it was sort of, you know, mild consideration of wearing dark glasses and a blonde beard <laughs> in case somebody might think that I was this sort of little car guy. Now, that is identifying with a car, and it's utterly ludicrous. 
to identify with a car, to think that what your car is, is something to do with you. But we do it with a body, mind and heart. And this is the enemy. So the idea is to find out who you are. And you have tremendous instructions from the scriptures, whether they be from the East or the West. But just to take Christianity, which we're most familiar with, we have two great statements that indicate what we are. I think it's in the Old Testament that says that man is made in the image of God. Do you think God's fat? So what is this image? What are its qualities? And you won't find it are the qualities of the body, the mind, or the heart. They're divine qualities. And the other one within Christianity, be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now that was an instruction that Christ gave to the disciples and they have passed it on uh, to all Christians. Now, this body is never going to be perfect. It ain't perfect now, it never was, and it has no chance of being perfect in the future. This mind is also not perfect. It wanders and it gets confused and it has doubts and all sorts of things. And this heart is also not perfect. And it can't be. There's nothing I can do to make it perfect. So either Christ left an impossible message or he was referring to something else. When he said, be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect, he was calling me, not my body, or not my mind, or not my heart, but something else. Liberation is in discovering who you are in truth. And when you discover who you are in truth, the ego moves away. It just dissolves, and you're free. And reason will help dissolve the ego, and so will love. Either will do it. Say you love someone. Your attention is naturally off yourself and onto them. So the ego doesn't operate. There's just total consideration of the other. And reason will also dissolve the ego. Let's say I said to you, do any of you have bad habits which are not helpful to you? So do you find yourself worrying about things or something like that? And you might all say, yes, I do worry. And if I say to you, does it bring you happiness? You might say to me, no, it doesn't bring me happiness. And then I would say to you, well, why not stop it? If it doesn't bring you happiness, why do you do it? Well, if you could appeal to reason, you would stop in an instant. You could be an habitual warrior for 50 years and you would stop on the instant. Say you say to me, you're thirsty. And I say, well, would you like a glass of arsenic? And you say no. And I say, look, it's a, it's a nice, pretty color. Trust me. You say, no, I don't care what the color is. I'm not drinking the arsenic. And if I say, well, look, it's smooth tasting. You say, I still don't care. I say, it's initially pleasant. Don't worry about the long-term effects. <laughs> you say, I don't care what you say. I'm not drinking the arsenic. If I say to you, is that a result of an amazing discipline you've been practicing all your life? You say, no. Is the result of absolute certitude that arsenic is bad for me. If you could come to the same certitude that worrying is unhelpful to your happiness, you'd stop immediately. So reason will make the weak person absolutely strong. You can overcome anything in your nature which is not helpful to you with reason. And on the instant. You can overcome grief in an instant or anything you ever suffer with reason.
So I, I don't know if that helps answer. Yes. You spoke about reason occurring in moments of stillness. Another aspect that comes into sort of moments of stillness sometimes is intuition. How does that relate to reason? Well, you could call intuition reason. When you have those moments of reason, you see everything all at once. The explanation comes later. You know with certainty. And if somebody said to you, well, what did you see? As you're saying it to them, you now understand what you saw. And intuition is very much like that. So you call it the same thing? Yes. Okay. We tend to think of reasoning as some sort of process, a bit like doing geometry, where you start off and you eventually come down to the end and say QED. Real reason is not like that. It's the light going on and seeing everything at once. I'd like to ask you about what you said with regard to feeling. You talked about suppression and expression. My understanding would agree with yours that expression of feeling doesn't get rid of it. But you talked about dissolving it. How would you describe a process of dissolving feelings, the very strong feelings, for example, such as anger or, you know, equally, you know, other ones not as aggressive or whatever? And that's the first thing. And the second thing you said, you can, with reason, dissolve things in an instant like grief. Would you agree that if the same feeling comes up again, that you must continually dissolve it in the instant? It won't be gone forever. Oh, well, it can be. If you get the root, it's gone forever. But we'll deal with your first question first, which I think has gone from my mind. About uh, how to integrate or dissolve oh, yeah. feelings. In, like, yes, absolutely. Well, very simply, let's say, I'll just take a very mundane example. You're trying to get to the airport on time, and you find yourself in a traffic jam. It has been known for anger to arise, and you can be, you know, mouthing all sorts of things to yourself. Now, if reason enters the mind, it will say to you, being angry will not get me to the airport one second earlier. Anger does not move traffic. And if you see that all you're doing is punishing yourself by being angry, then you can stop being angry in an instant. Has that ever happened? Uh, yes, I have experienced so, that. So reason will do that. Reason can dissolve anger in an instant. Yes, now, but that particular feeling was an instant reaction. What yes. about more deep-rooted feelings? A long-term one. Yes. Right. There's no problem. It's the same thing. I'm going to give you... It's to cigarette smoking, but it's not the all-time sin of humanity to smoke cigarettes, but it, you get a sense of the addiction to it and over a long period of time. Well, there's a man in the school. He had given up cigarettes about 40 times, but unfortunately he'd taken them up 41 times, so he was still smoking. Somebody gave him a book, and I just can't remember the name of the book. But in the book, the man told a story. The writer of the book told the story. The story was about a man who one day woke up and found a pimple on his face. This distressed him a bit. And a friend said to him, I have a cream that can get rid of this pimple. So the friend gave the pimpled man the cream. And sure enough, when he put it on his cheek, the pimple went on the instant. Immediate cure. But the next day when he woke up, there were two pimples there. All right. 
So he took some more of his magic cream and he applied it and absolutely instantly both pimples went. But the next morning there were four pimples there. So then he got more of the cream and he applied it and every time he applied it, the pimples went on the instant. But they kept getting worse and worse and worse. At this stage he used to have a little suitcase full of this cream which he'd bring with him everywhere because the pimples would just emerge from nowhere. But every time he applied it, they all disappeared. We now have this, you know, six-foot acneed entity wandering the earth. Another friend comes up to him and he says, you know something, the cream causes the pimples. That's what's causing the pimples. What would you do with that cream? You would throw it away on the instant. What the man in the book said, cigarettes cause the desire for cigarettes. Every time you have the cigarette, your desire for the cigarette is gone. But then, you've now got a stronger desire for more cigarettes. And I said to the man, have you stopped smoking? He said, how could you continue to smoke when you've heard that? He gave it up on the instant. Because the reasonableness of it was so self-evident. Now, he tried everything. There's still sort of marks where the nicotine patches used to go. But he is now a cigarette-free environment. And that's what reason can do. It can do anything. It's all-powerful, so no habit can withstand it. So whether it's anger or cigarettes or grief or something you've never forgiven somebody for or anything like that, makes no difference. It can be overcome if reason operates. Now, I think your second one was about it coming back again. But there are times you can dissolve it and it never, ever, ever comes back. And you've got the root for it. There are other times that doesn't happen and sure enough it appears and you have to apply reason a second time or a third time. But if it is the purest and the highest reason, it goes on the instant. So. Well, it's just that... Um I know what you're saying, but like, if a strong feeling comes, it would seem to me, okay, instead of lashing out at somebody or expressing it in a, an ineffective way, it'll still be there. But if you, first of all, acknowledge the feeling that's there and actually let it be felt in your body or whatever way, within yourself, until it dissolves itself, I, I just think that there is a process that you must go through, you know? Yes, well, I understand you think there's a process, but reason eliminates the need for a process. Well, the way you described it, it sounds to me as though the reason was actually suppressing it rather than letting it be felt. Oh, no. No, it dissolves it. Dissolves it on the inside. arise. Sorry? If feelings arise and but they're you can not dissolve felt, them. they're suppressed. No, but you can dissolve them. Well, you must acknowledge that it's there in the first place. Well, you don't have to worry about all of that. You dissolve it on the instant. What a feeling is, is a concentration of the heart onto a particular point. It's a tension in the heart or the emotional world. All you have to do is relax it. it goes on the instant. Yeah, well, maybe it's just a different way of expressing it, but relaxing it to me would mean letting it be felt rather than tensing up and, and suppressing it, just letting it be. No, it's not letting it be because otherwise then it will run its course. It's actually dissolving it on the instant. But if you're a conscious person, you will be conscious of it being there and arising in the first place. 
So that's what I mean by acknowledging it, I suppose, just being conscious. All right. How long are you going to do this acknowledging thing? Well, I think that... No, I, I don't think it has to go on for days or weeks or... How about a nanosecond? No, I think that if you, in the moment, acknowledge it, that it will automatically change into something else. No, but I'm saying it, it can go on the instant. On the instant. It doesn't have to stay any length of time. It doesn't have to transform into something else. It doesn't have to become milder. It can go on the instant. You're forcing me to tell a story I've told about a million times, but I'm going to tell it again then, all right? When I was young, I had a girlfriend that I felt very strongly for, and she died in a car crash, and it broke my heart at the time. So I grieved. And if I compare my grief to what other people say grief is, I think I grieved as much as they did. So I didn't want to live. I endangered my life on a few occasions just to see, could I bring an early death? All sorts of things. And this is going on for months. And I'm sitting down in a chair one day, rocking in the chair, wishing that I could die, that this would be released from this grief. And so I'm rocking away. And as I'm rocking away, my eyes suddenly fall down to my chest, and I see it expanding and contracting as I'm taking the breath in and out. And I ask myself, if I'm so interested in death, why am I breathing so easily? Because this breath is actually giving life to the body. And then for some reason my head turned to the left and there's a kitchen table there. And on the kitchen table there was a cereal bowl with some cereal in it. And there were three cereal boxes. And I had been eating from that cereal bowl. And the remnants of the cereal were there. And it was my favorite cereal of the three. And I asked the question, if I hate life so much and I want to die, why did I pick my favorite cereal? And the answer came back was because I loved life. And I got out of the chair and never grieved again. Ever again. Whoever has died since. No grief. That's reason. Thank you. Yes. Can I just, following on from that question, and you say, you know, dissolving moments in an instance, take the example you had of getting angry in the car. In that moment of reason, you can say to yourself, there's no point in this. But there's also habit, or, you know, you said earlier, your mind, you can't always control your mind. How do they relate, if you like? Well, full reason will dissolve the habit. If it's not full reason, the habit will still remain alive and represent itself. You may temporarily hold it at bay, but it will come back. But if it's full reason, it will go on the instant. I'm going to have to give you another cigarette story. A lady came up to me years ago, and she was smoking something like 40 cigarettes a day. She said to me that she tried very, very hard to give up cigarettes, and did the philosophy school have anything to say about how to give up cigarettes? <laughs> she obviously had a very broad view of the function of the school of philosophy. And I said, well, I didn't have any knowledge about giving up cigarettes since I hadn't taken them up in the first place. But I had heard a man say to me once that when you see that smoking cigarettes is a complete and utter waste of time, you will give them up just like that. And as I finished the sentence, somebody interrupted me and I began to speak to them. And I didn't speak to the lady again. 
anyway, about three or four months, or maybe six months later, she met me again. And she came up to me. She said to me, I gave up cigarettes. I couldn't remember who she was, and I said, that was very interesting. She said, I just want to tell you, when you said to me, when you realize that cigarettes are a complete and utter waste of time, you would give them up just like that. She said, I realized they were a complete and utter waste of time, and I gave them up just like that. So the habit was completely dissolved in an instant. Now, what these questions show, with no insult to the audience, is that we don't really experience the highest reason. We don't have enough experience of it to see its full power. But if we did, we would marvel at it. We would marvel that we, as human beings, have the capacity to reason. We're always in search of happiness. And we have two great aids to find this happiness. Reason in the mind and love in the heart. And they will bring us to happiness if we use them. So we have to use reason. It has to be awakened in us. It's lying there dormant, unused. If the mind becomes still, you will find that reason begins to operate. And it will grow stronger and stronger and stronger. And you'll find that where you have maybe thought in the past that you've been overpowered by habit, you will find immense strength. Immense there's somebody else. A very interesting lecture, thank you. Could I just ask you about stillness and movement at the same time and how you can strengthen and develop your experience of stillness as you are actually living, being, acting? I understand. I understand. Yes. Do you type at all? I do, yes. Right. Okay. Do you remember say, when you were learning to type, there would have been a strong identification that these fingers are typing. And that would have led to a lot of movement in the mind and concern about, are the fingers going on to the right point? But as the facility to type grew, a certain confidence would have emerged and a detachment. And you would have let the fingers do the typing. You let them do the typing. You're not saying, get over the queue or whatever. You just let them do it, and they do it. This is the key. When somebody asks you a question, whether it be in a talk like this or anywhere else, let your lower jaw drop and let the words pour out. Don't try and talk to them. Just let speech flow. Let your body walk. Let your hands move but remain absolutely still yourself. You're not the body, you're not the mind, and you're not the heart. If your false self gets out of the way, they operate beautifully, absolutely beautifully. And you let them, and you watch them as a witness, an unmoving witness. And if that's the case, the mind becomes absolutely still. And in that context, how do you remain involved in the situation that you're in without actually giving the impression of being detached or yes. remote from whatever you're dealing with. A cave dweller. Yes. All right. <laughs> the body, mind, and heart will participate absolutely fully in the creation. 
when you're attached, you get in the way. Let's say I say to you, okay, I want you to come up here and I want you to be witty. The pressure, the identification, God, how am I going to get a witty statement out, would cause you to be absolutely unfunny. Did you ever try and be nice to someone? You know when you were a kid and your mother said, now be nice to your Aunt Nellie. <laughs> you know, after about a half an hour with Aunt Nellie, you began to believe in euthanasia. <laughs> because you were trying. But when you stand back, when you stand back, then these instruments work beautifully. So, if you're a mother or a father and your child cries, the heart naturally responds. And its intelligence, the heart has this wonderful love intelligence, will allow you to care for the child. And the mind will reveal what it knows without you pushing it or doing anything to it. It just will. As regards questions and answers, you don't have to have answers to answer the question. You only have to receive the question. If you receive the question, the answer's drawn out of you. You don't have to have a store them. It's not like that. The question draws them out. It's one of the tragedies of exams, that everybody thinks the question is on the paper and the answer's in my head. The answer's in the question. Don't look in there for an answer. You'll find it in the question. So, that's what happens. You'll find that with this detachment, there will be far greater connection or presence of being. And with that greater connection, there will be full response, and measured response, and appropriate response to the needs of the moment. So if there's a need to walk, you walk. If there's a need to say something, you'll say it. If there's a need to respond with compassion to an event, it will naturally arise. But you yourself can remain as the witness of all. Thank you. Yes, anybody else? Shane, I just wanted to ask you about reason. When you're in the rocking chair and when you're yeah. in the car, you had a moment of reason, but yeah. how do you attain that moment? I feel as if it's a discipline that I'm going to have to practice attaining reason. But for you, how did it come yes. to you? Let's say I said to everybody in this room, now, I want you all to be reasonable for the next five minutes. It's not possible. You don't try and do reason. All you do is try and create the state in which reason arises naturally. So let's say you're a gardener. You can't grow the plant. You don't get a plant and sort of stretch it like this. What you do is you try and create an environment in which the plant will naturally grow. So you water it and fertilize it and all sorts of things like that. And if you do provide a natural environment, then the plant will grow. So the key to reason is stillness of mind. Then it will simply happen. You're not able to call on it, but you won't need to call on it, because it will just happen. It becomes naturalized. Say smiling. You don't have 2,000 smiles stuffed away somewhere, and every time somebody says something funny, you release one. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to practice smiling. It's natural. And when something hits the mind or the heart and you find it entertaining, the smile comes to meet it. 
when reason will arise to meet the moment in stillness. So, you have to create stillness in mind. So, you take things like you find that anger doesn't create stillness, and jealousy doesn't, and envy doesn't, and all these things. Love does make you still. Passion doesn't, but love does. You'll find that there are certain literature or certain programs you watch, and they either fill your mind full of fear, or they allow you to be at rest. Even at a physical level, there are certain food which makes you lethargic or very active, and there's other food which leaves the body very naturally at rest. What you and I require is a diet for the body, mind, and heart. And we need to feed the body, mind, and heart with that food, which is productive of health, stillness, and peace in the heart. And that's all you have to do, and then it will happen of its own accord. So that's the fundamental thing. Meditation as a technique is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. It transforms the subtle world. And to give you a sense of its need, if I said to you, if you didn't wash the body, after a very short period of time, you would find yourself living alone. But you'd also probably be suffering from ill health as the germs took over. So, because you use the body in the creation, it takes up dirt and therefore needs to be cleansed. Now, you also use your mind and your heart every day. And it takes up dirt. It takes up images and sounds and gossip and ideas and worries and fears. And they rest there. But if I say to you, do you wash your mind and heart regularly? You might say, well, I just rest it regularly, so I bring it to bed. But if you bring a dirty body to bed, it'll be dirty the next morning. If you bring a dirty mind and heart to bed, it'll also be dirty the next morning. You have to find a way to clean the mind and the heart. And meditation is the all-time cleaner of mind and heart. Whatever has attached itself to the mind in the forms of habits and to the heart in the form of negative emotions, meditation allows all that to be let go. And it just falls away. So, meditation is excellent. The other thing, then, is if you read scripture or the words of the wise, what you get is pronouncements of great principle, like love thy neighbor as thyself, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you're happy with the truthfulness of them, and you adopt them, and you practice them, you will find they're all conducive to stillness and peace. So it is very, very good to study the wise. That will do it all. But reasoning yourself, you can't really do anything about it. Thank you. Okay. Yes, anybody else? So, this man here. Like, how long will all that take? Like, <laughs> if you really want it, in an instant. In an instant. It's available on the instant. I.e., you and I can be absolutely reasonable right now. If we want to. In the ordinary run of events, it takes a long time to develop. But it can be had on the instant. The greatest thing to have is earnestness to really want it. There's a man called Swami Vivekananda, who's now dead, and he was a disciple of Ramakrishna. He had heard 
that Ramakrishna had seen God. Swami Vivekananda went to Ramakrishna and he said, I'd like to see God too. So Ramakrishna said, all right, come with me. Or I think he said to him, how may I see God? And Ramakrishna said, okay, come with me. And he brought him to a lake and they stood in the lake up to their waist. And Ramakrishna grabbed him from behind and stuck his head under the water. And he kept him down there for about two minutes. So when he came out, his eyes were bulging, his tongue was hanging out, and he was gasping for air. And he said, when you wish to see God with the same intensity, you will. So you can't say, look, I've got a passing interest in being reasonable. <laughs> if you really, really, really want it, you'll have it like that. But it doesn't seem to be common. It seems to be a process. Or not a process, sorry, an unfolding. It's a bit like, say we had neglected brass or something like that. So it's now lost all its shine. And you start to shine. And the first time you spend 15 minutes, it's not as dull as it was, but it's not fully shiny. And then you go back to the next day. And each day, you remove a bit of the covering. And then one day, it shines in its own perfection. It seems that this is the way we approach it. So what you should do, if that is the way you will approach it, what you do is you work with that which is obviously unreasonable in your life. Obviously unreasonable. They're the easy things. And you start practicing them. You begin to let them go. And as you let those go, other aspects of your being which are unreasonable will begin to reveal themselves. You let those go. And the light will begin to shine through. And then what happens is that reason visits you. You get these magic moments, just like the moment in the chair. You'll have these moments again and again and again, uncalled for, amazing moments when you know the truth about everything. Then you now know of the certainty of the power of reason. And then you're only left with one last thing to do to make it constant. But what you have is the certainty, and that gives you great courage to go forward. Yes, was there somebody over here? All out of reason, huh? What should be our, our reaction to very unreasonable events? And I'm, I'm thinking of what's going on in the world. I mean, I, I consider myself a reasonable person, but I don't know how I should react to what's going on. Right. Well, let's say you had a child and they were hungry. How should you react to their hunger? Feed them. Feed them with food, all right. Let's say the last couple of days we've seen you know, manifestations of hatred or great ignorance. If you saw hatred, what would you do? If you see hunger, you offer food. If you see hatred, what do you offer? True knowledge. You'd offer love for hatred. If you saw ignorance, you'd offer knowledge. Your job is to make good the deficiency. There is no point in being miserable over what has happened in the last couple of days. The world needs no more misery. 
Does that make sense? It doesn't need your misery. Again, I've said this before, but the man who founded the school, Leon McLaren, was a remarkably compassionate man. And that compassion at times caused him to suffer. So when he saw the misery in the world, it really affected him. And towards the end of his life, he put this situation effectively to the Shankaracharya. And the Shankaracharya gave the most beautiful answer, which is of absolute benefit to you and I. He said, compassion is an absolutely natural human emotion. But there is compassion under ignorance and compassion under wisdom. And compassion under ignorance is where you're moved by the misery of another to become miserable yourself. And now what has happened is the misery has been doubled in the world. And compassion under wisdom is where you're moved by the misery of another to relieve the misery in the other. And now the misery has been eliminated from the world. So compassion will be an absolutely natural response to the last couple of days. But let it be under wisdom. The Americans don't need your misery, or northern Irish people, whoever were killed. They don't need your misery. Does that make sense? I can't remember how many of the births of our children I went to. There weren't 44 of them now. There was only a few of them. But I can't remember whether it was two or three I went to. And I can't remember which child it was. But I remember my wife in one of the childbirths, doing the normal, at least what I understand to be the normal things that wives do, like screaming when giving birth and saying the pain is too much and all these sort of things. And I watched the nurses. The nurses were amazing. They were absolutely unmoved by what my wife was saying. They just kept on giving her the instructions. You know, breathe, don't breathe. Get a grip on yourself, Mrs. Mullaw. Which I thought was remarkably brave of them. I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> but I just watched them, and they were unbelievable. You couldn't say they were cold-hearted, because they weren't cold-hearted. You couldn't be a nurse and be cold-hearted. You're there to nurse people. So they were full of love, but they were absolutely disciplined. They were unmoved by, we call it, the pain or misery of my wife at that moment. That's compassion under wisdom. Now, you might say, well, what can I do at a practical level? Acts such as happened in the last couple of days are acts of immense ignorance. So what is required is wisdom. You should become wise. If you are wise, you will influence millions. Your tears won't influence anybody. Ignorance has to be dissolved. It is ignorant to look at a black man or a Muslim or a Catholic or a Protestant and see them as different than yourself. If Martians were looking down on this earth, they would see us all as humans. But we see differences. But what we need is wisdom or philosophy or true religion which sees unity everywhere. The Shankaracharya was asked and he said, what the world needs now is men and women of steady knowledge and wisdom. And it really does need it. We don't need a great Irish man or a great Irish woman. We need a great man or woman. You know, somebody like Martin Luther King 
went beyond his blackness. That's why so many whites followed him. He didn't remain a black man. Mahatma Gandhi went beyond being an Indian. That's why so many, again, white people followed him. Mandela isn't black. He isn't a great black man. He's a great man. And the world needs this. And those who practice stillness, who study the words of the wise, who meditate, who bring love to their hearts, will transform the subtle world will change the ideas that do produce all this division and hatred. So, we leave it at that. Thank you.